Welcome to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter. This is a podcast where I am blending the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, faith, and trauma. If there is a topic that most people say we're not supposed to talk about, I'm talking about it because that is how we heal. We don't heal in silence, we heal by speaking out. So today I have been really thinking about like where are the beautiful people and wanting to surround myself with with beauty, with love, with comfort, with safety. And it is my total honor to introduce listeners to my friend, Tommy Allgood. Uh, Tommy, if you will, introduce yourself and state your identities to listeners. Hey, how's it going? Hi. <laughs> Uh, I love I love being on this side of the microphone. I'm usually like doing the interviews and trying to be like, all right, really listen, really, really listen. I'm still going to really listen, but it's a, I get to listen differently today. So thank you. Thank you so much for even the way you introduced that. Um, but for those listening, my name is Tommy. A lot of people uh, know me by Tommy All Good. And no, it's not my real name. There's like most things, their story behind that. I reside on the land of the Catawba and the Sugary, the um, colonially named uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. And I am a queer human, Black, a non-binary identifying human. Yeah, it's very interesting, this question of identities. I've, I've, I've held a lot of identities and hold a lot of identities. I'm a nurse, a facilitator. I've been a surgical assistant, a counselor, um, a consultant, a spiritual care director. So get to morph and shape into this world in really beautiful ways and I kind of couch all that under this idea of uh, the nurse of the people. <laughs> Love that. You really are a nurse of the people. To and for the people. You do that really well. You do that really well. The caring for people. Thank you. Thank you. I was thinking about our shared identities of being queer, of being Black. I don't know that we have the same faith identities, but I think they're they're very close. And I wanted to know, <clears throat> probably because as we're recording this, this is Pride Month, but even if it's not Pride Month, I am always thinking about how queerness and Blackness um, how it's treated, how it's represented, respected. And for me, I have parts of my system that are really in tune with both of those identities. And just wondering, sometimes I even wonder, like, how am I representing my own identities? 
So I guess I also want to ask you as it relates to being queer, non-binary, Christian, if that's what you call, if that if you identify with that. Um, how have it's debatable. you <laughs> it's debatable? I agree. I agree. How have you reconciled your own identity and love for yourself? I'm it's really interesting the thought a person just came to my mind, my friend Cedric in years ago in the spiritual space we both um have roles at and at times attend and um we had this series on reconciliation and <clears throat> it was talking about like racial reconciliation like black and white folk and he said something that's always stuck with me that like you can't reconcile something that has never like existed or something or that that has never been consiled right and that just really struck me of like oh okay and that has its implications for our lived history and how that affects us but I think to answer your question and I'm gonna go deep first <laughs> probably um there was was nothing to reconcile and what I mean by that is I now understand that we're already good we're already whole all of my parts and they all have a purpose and any need to reconcile is external forces being imposed onto my body to fit a certain way, to be a certain way. Um, and so the truth, you know, is I get to feel this name, Tommy, and we get to journey together to create and define who and what Tommy is. And I think being able to identify in that way has a deep power to it. Um, so it's a recognition that I am Black because some thing, someone, some system said I am Black. I am queer um, because something said that I was not normal. I am non-binary because something says that I have to fit into these binary choices. And, and that just doesn't resonate with, with my being. And so I think the tr more truth is like, I am good, I am whole, and I get to share that with people when we get to make meaning together. Listen, you just spoke to my heart. What you just, the way in which you just articulated all of it, first of all, was in, in alignment, almost psychically with what I've been kind of thinking about this morning, literally my spirit guides dropped into my system that I am black, I am queer, I am who I am organically, innately. And my only responsibility is to literally just be me. There's nothing else. Mm, if there's any other work 
that work belongs to someone else. Mm. It's not on me. I share, I share. So the, your answer to like, this is why you're my sibling. <laughs> we just connect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Whenever I describe you to people, or even if you come up in conversation, if I'm talking to our mutual sibling, Letty. Hey, girl. <laughs> or if I'm talking to my friend, Andrea, there's this moment in our conversation where when your name comes up, there's this word that we use to describe you. And it's beautiful. Tommy is such a beautiful human. Whatever your parents did, the night in which you, there was this procreation happening, it was beautiful. That's <laughs> all I'm going to say. It was, it was beautiful. It was chaotic. It was a hurricane. It yeah. was, it was so many things. It was trauma. It was, yeah. <laughs> but, but they created a beautiful human. And, and I just, I'm very curious. I want to know when, or if it is common that, that people describe you as such. Yeah. I think, I think like, I think my intention is to live a life where people experience me as as beautiful, as des uh, as desired. Even I think that comes from, in some ways, not feeling desired at times as a child, and so I learned to be desired through nurturing and attention and care um, and service. Mm. I think I don't want to say that all of that was trauma related some of that socialization which is distinct from trauma and then some of it was trauma related and trying to fit into um, a particular way not just individual trauma but um, generational trauma that at the time I didn't know I was a part of this larger story we're all a part of some larger story right and so I do know that people experience me as beautiful and I never want to take that for granted or make the assumption mm -hmm. because people also experience me as a lot of many other things, intense, <laughs> um, direct, <laughs> right? So like, I'm a whole ass human over here. <laughs> whole ass human. <laughs> many identities. Many polarizations, many sides. So many, so many. Yes, yes, yes. Just in the, in these streets of capitalism and having to make a living, most people just get to experience this like nurturing person. And, you know, there's there's so much to be said about those intersections as well and, and the ways that living and society force us into particular performances and whatnot but I mean I'm I'm straight up I'm real human real human <laughs> and I think my cadence is is one trying to be you know attentive to what's going on for me but also how I understand what's going on for me in relationship to what's going on around me as well 
And so it's this space of pause, this space of slowing, the space of building awareness. And I think that alongside the beauty piece is this awareness piece that I try to navigate life through and and be attentive. So, and I think that supports the beauty. (laughs) Absolutely, it does. So going back to how we met and we met through, through Letty, she would talk about you all the time. And I'm like, I want to meet Tommy. But I want to know when it, as it relates to us, what was it about, about your, your connection to me? What inspired you to say, I I want Tasha in in my life, or I want to get to know Tasha. What was it about me? Now, now I'm turning the tables on, like, it's all about me in this moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you so much for that question. I think it's a beautiful invitation into reflection that um, we need to model and practice in relationship more. So thank you. Even though this is about you, I somehow will make it about me. Yes. But I think I was in a season where I was really attentive to um, who was making up the fabric of my life. Um who were my people and um, who were the people that I I want to be accountable to as well. And through activism work, so I I met Letty um, on social media through activism work through another friend, Tina, and, you know, just this massive global activation and the 2020 protests and I've like most people get to exist in a lot of white spaces I was becoming aware of things that I wanted to keep um working on keep making sure that like I was rooting out misogynoir in me that <laughs> that I was really understanding what Black women said when they said what it means to be a Black woman, like the depths of that. And I think the only way I could do that is in relationship. And there was this moment that I was taking assessment or of who, who am I surrounding myself with? Um, what wisdom am I surrounding myself with? Especially as I went into my own journey of healing work, um, outside of the systems of our industrial medical complex. Um, and I had some work to do. And so um, I started to build relationships with Black women very intentionally and um, rebuild some of the some of the queer fabric of that. And um I don't know what in particular it was but I think you know uh, I think I I was also in a season of listening for signs right mm-hmm. and like you said repetition like a friend kept saying your name a friend kept saying your name and I was like well I I need to meet this person I need to have this person in my life and then I got to see the work that you were doing in the world and this was Cohen this was intersecting with like oh like 
this expanded practice of what does it mean to be a, a care worker, a healer, a mental health professional, a nurse, and um, we were asking similar questions. Um, but I think the thing that solidified it for me was a relational experience of trust that we shared. And I guess for context, let me back up to say that like, I'm a registered nurse. And so when I say that, I'm saying that I've been trained into a particular way of thinking and philosophy and governance structure. Um, and that we kind of keep those things separate from what a licensed clinical social worker or a clinical therapist and how that training, there's different models of training, right? And so um, when we're talking about fragmentation, right, in the ways that the world fragments us out, that's, that's one of the things that fragments us out. But in you, I saw this desire to do some similar work where I was doing around breaking down some of that fragmentation and working more holistically. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had experiences with therapists that essentially said, you know, stay in your lane mm -hmm. versus building that accountability structure. Mm -hmm. um, because we all have, we've all been taught about harm. We've all been taught about ethics. We all also deeply, more deeply, we have this particular lived experience that is often missed by the industrial medical complex and, and, and um, their particular ethics and where they root those from. And so when I say it was a moment of trust that I think really solidified it was when you mirrored me and said, I trust you to have this experience, this journey. Mm -hmm. And I also want to be your friend. Mm -hmm. And that I was just like, oh, okay, I surrender. <laughs> yeah, you know, we can we connected during pandemic times, and I I remember for a long time, and and actually, this is still the season that I'm in. Is I am always really looking, keeping my eyes and ears open for where are the helpers. Where are the healers? Where are the people that are committed to their own healing? So my my spirit felt connected to you in that way. Um, and you mentioned Kina. I just want to pause and say, hey, Kina, another, <laughs> another beautiful human. But yeah, when, when we look at things, again, like, like, being a registered nurse, me being a licensed clinical social worker, we are told you need to stay in your lane or this is not your job. And, and there's a separation. But when we take a uh, dominant culture's perspective of that out, we realize that we are actually all in community together. So how can we co-labor? Yeah. And in, in the, in the medical world, they call it interdisciplinary team. Mm -hmm. But yet the structure is not designed to be interdisciplinary. It's actually designed to be dysfunctional. And so you end up having a lot of people being missed because the teams that are supposed to be communicating and talking effectively um, is not structured. 
to do that way, a structure to this specialty and this specialty and this silo and this silo. Um, and so I think we're in a season of adjustment in many ways, right? So like, that's just a symptom of the larger ways that we're fragmented out from dominant culture. Mm-hmm. And we're in this adjustment of like, okay, but like, no, all these parts, this, this has to work as a whole body. <laughs> it has to, it has to. Um, that even makes me think about my work in patient safety, working with quality, working with risk management, working with utilization management. Uh, we all had our, our thing, but when things, when we worked together, people's lives were saved. Yes, absolutely. People didn't, you know, misdiagnosis decreased, medical errors decreased, all of that stuff because we were working together and communicating about the care of this human. So even though I don't do that work anymore, I'm still very much committed to being in community with healing again, individually healing together. And then how can we heal our community? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's it. That's all I want to do with the rest yeah. of my life. Yeah. I'm just thinking about too, the way that we started the conversation talking about identities and how, like, I think the recognition of our parts have a role in that healing as well. Um yeah, I just wanted to mention that, that it was surfacing up for me. Say more about that, the recognition of our parts. Um, <clears throat> I think, let me, let me illustrate it this way with my, my life experience of, there's a, there's a clear contrast of when I accepted my queer identity and began to journey and understand and unpack that versus when I was rejecting (laughs) it and for my healing what was needed was the acknowledgement um, of that tension the and the acknowledgement of the system that I was trying to fit into and so when we talk about healing in communities, healing interpersonally, healing individually. Understanding our parts, I think, gives us a glimpse into the direction of healing that we need to go. And I would argue that marginalized bodies have very common directions in which they need to go, and dominant bodies have directions in which they need to go. But the first thing that we have to do is acknowledge. So by acknowledging my queerness, that was a a, a literal release in my body. Like my body could ease into itself versus fight itself, one. And so when when that happens, what, what I'm doing is also decreasing the inflammation that's coursing through my body, the cortisol, the stress hormones that in that restriction, if unresolved, creates dis-ease or disease as we know it. And so I guess what I want to say 
is that we can look at our parts, we can look at our identities and cultivate curiosity if we're if we're like, how do I heal? How do I do this work? Well, what are the parts that I identify with? And begin to go on a, a journey of like, why do I identify with those parts? Or who said I had to? Or what am I trying to fit into? And I think we start to first see in that awareness, the places we've been wounded, the places we've been missed, but it opens us up and builds a deeper capacity for empathy, for connection. And, and without that, I don't know um, if we're going to be seeing the healing of the world that we actually want to see, as opposed to continually treating symptoms with pills or whatever the case may be. Have this, I don't know, there's there's something happening in my body where it's like, yes, 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 like to, to everything. And and even going back to like the the identities that acceptance, how, how my body received what you were saying is that it isn't until we accept who we are that we can relax into healing. Mm. We yes. can relax into wholeness. We can relax into ease where there was previously dis-ease. Yes. That acceptance is pivotal. Only then can you really be whole. And and you have to, throughout this process, even question the identities that you hold. Who told you who you were? Who defined you for you? You got to share all of that. Mm. <laughs> question everything. And, and for those of us who are in the global majority, we've not always been given the right or felt empowered to ask questions, to be curious. But that too is essential. Mm. And I, just while I'm thinking about it, some of the people that I want to give credit to around like that, uh, you can trace some of the lines of thoughts that we're talking about here, obviously internal family systems work, um, uh, I want to shout out uh, Dr. Hilary McBride and the wisdom of your body. That's been a foundational text for me. Um, Resma Minicum, uh, my grandmother's hands, and really any of Resma's works. Um, and then Dr. Gabor Mate recently came out with a book called The Myth of Normal. Um, and so, uh, and then there's another book called Inflamed. Uh, one of the authors is two authors. I'm so sorry that I'm blanking on one, but the other is Raj Patel, I think. And um, it really helps to give a, a yin to create a model that first begins with the body and centers the body um, uh, to give us a different model of, of entry into healing. And I wanna say that it's important to center the body because in our culture, um, it's not what we center. We center uh, property, we center ideas at the expense of the body. Mm -hmm. 
And all of the books that you named, I have all of those, and I'm going to be putting those in the show notes. Um, and I want to ask you about your work or, or even your calling. In this season of your life, what do you feel you're being called to do or focus on in this season? Pleasure, love, and nurturance. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love it. <laughs> mm. Yeah. That fills my spirit. Everything that you named, pleasure, love, nurturance. Did I get them all? Am mm -hmm. I missing one? We both have a trauma history. Mm -hmm. And those three have been essential to my own healing. Yes. Yes. And I think I discuss pleasure every day as it's it's a bomb. It's 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 rebellion, it's resistance, it's a right. And that is also the work that I am focusing on heavily in this this phase of my life, probably until the end of time, because we don't have enough of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I said those not lightly either. So they're deep conceptual categories. And so I was, do you want to go a little deeper into that? So um, yeah, pleasure. Nurturance. Did I say love? What was the? What was? What was? Okay. I was like, well, I. I <laughs> you did. It's what. It's what I'm like. My body will remember even if my mind doesn't. Okay. Yeah. You said pleasure. <laughs> you said love, and you said nurturance. Okay. Okay. So, pleasure. I want to. Um, this is what happens when you surround yourself with black women who are doing the work. Because thank you. Shout out to Tina Strong. Uh, shout out to Keena Reed. Um, shout out to Adrian Marie Brown. And speaking of which, Adrian Marie Brown has a book called Pleasure Activism. And I think in one of the opening chapters, she talks about an orgasmic yes. And she's drawing from the work of Audre Lorde's uses of the erotic and the erotic as creative power. And oh my gosh, right? And so for me, when you talk about trauma, right? Like um, growing up in religious spaces and places that um, wanted this disembodied experience, wanted this experience of suppression of, of the body to be able to fully and completely recontextualize the erotic not just as sexual, but as creative energy. That's a liberating concept. And so in a system that says your body, particularly Black, Brown, uh, queer, disabled, uh, your bodies are meant for this purpose or to be invisible, pleasure becomes an act of resistance pleasure becomes a practice of resilience. When I think about love, 
I'm thinking about also boundaries and Prentice Hemphill saying that the distance at which I can love both you and me simultaneously, that's, that's what boundaries are, right? And so love is this really ethereal um, concept, but it's something that we work out and experience every day in our body. And most often we know it when we don't have it, right? Is um, most often we're socialized to think it's these really big highs. But really I find that it's in the everyday day-to-day, the day-to-day practices of how I'm tending to all of my relationships, beginning with myself. And that's where I think nurturance comes in. This practice of care, this practice of solidarity. Um, So within that, there's a lot of work that can be done that I am doing, right? But I think um, guiding people, uh, journeying with people through into these things more fully um, that's the work I'm called to in this season. And it looks a lot of different ways that I'm sure we'll get to talk about. Or maybe we'll just keep it between us. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> but you said something a minute ago, again, that serendipity is really in the room right now. She's here. I'll be attending a wedding this weekend and I've been asked to speak. So I wrote about love. And by the time this episode comes out, I will have attended the wedding and spoken. So there will be no spoilers. But I I wrote about, I went back to Bell Hooks this morning and I reread the essential ingredients to love. And what I wrote in my speech to this beautiful couple relates to the components in which mother ancestor bell hooks speaks about we have to give that to ourselves first the pleasure the love the, the nurturance that you speak about we have to give that make it a practice a ritual of giving that to ourselves first before we can give it to anybody else in a healthy and balanced way Mm. and in a self-led way. You have Mother Bell Hook's book, one of my favorites, all about love in your hand. (laughs) Did you want to read a little bit of it? Sure. I'm I'm just digging in more more profoundly myself. And so, um, but I think, you know, the thing that, I'm sitting with is this quote that all great movements for social justice in our society have a strongly emphasized a love ethic. Yet young, yet the young remain reluctant to embrace the idea of love as a transformative force. To them, love is for the naive, the weak, the hopelessly romantic. Their attitude is mirrored in the grown-ups they turn to for explanations. 
as spokesperson for a disillusioned generation. Elizabeth Wurzel asserts in Bitch and Praise of Difficult Women, none of us are getting better at loving. We're getting more scared of it. We were not given good skills to begin with. And the choices we make have tended only to reinforce our sense that it is hopeless and useless. Her words echo all that I hear an older generation say about love. She's so incisive. <laughs> As a cultural critic, like Mother Bell is just so incisive. And we see that, right? And I also want to say, like, we see this alienation of love, but I also want to acknowledge and honor the healing work of love that we're also seeing across movements. And I want to say that just in the presence of conflict does not mean that there's an absence of love either, right? And so there's a lot of narratives around conflict, around um, um, I'm going to go over here and do this thing and I'm going to, and, and, you know, like we're all learning, we're all growing. We're all in this reclamation of, of what is period. And we have to, again, look at the system that we exist in and how we've been shaped to relate to one another within that system. And the only way to begin to realign that is to start to divest and pause and say, wait, th this isn't working for me anymore. And that requires us to slow down and pick up something else. We can pick up cynicism and skepticism. Um, and we will pick those things up. But I think, are we turning our intention and focus to the cynicism and skepticism where we could be focusing on pleasure? love and nurturance deep so i'm taking notes so that i don't forget because i want to come back to these i feel like i want to have a whole conversation on what it means to have an ethics of love and the point that you just made loving doesn't mean that we won't have conflict absolutely we will have conflict because we're we're different people with different ideas, different opinions, different experiences, different passions. And we live in a complicated world. Conflict will be birthed mm. and still love each other. We can have disagreements and we'll have disagreements and can still be committed to loving each other so long as it's healthy. Conflict will be birthed. That is a whole word like think about birth um i teach a class and uh, around discomfort in 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 um business and i talk about you know different kinds of conflict there's stagnant conflict um there's destructive conflict which is what we our bodies experience the most in our relationships and then there's this idea of generative conflict, right? Conflict itself is neutral, is how we orient ourselves to it that determines what will be born of from it, what will be created from it. Uh, conflict is the place of generation. It is the place of, uh, of birth. 
and that's a beautiful thing but it often the birth does not come without pain <laughs> without labor and again that's where this idea of nurturance comes in to play and i'm just thinking that we need tools to help us to do this like we, because we're experiencing so much in and with our bodies at times um, we don't have access to the resources externally or even internally um, to be able to see pleasure, to see love. And we need help with that. And so I'm really grateful for a lot of the indigenous learning and for the embrace of, of plant medicine as well because our relationship to the earth can be a tool in our healing yeah thank you for bringing up plant medicine I was just thinking I want to get into plant medicine and then you mentioned it why are we so in sync <laughs> yeah so I was introduced to sacred earth medicines, maybe about three, maybe almost four years ago. And it's changed my life significantly and helped me to heal from my own abandonment issues, um, abuse, other traumas that I experienced throughout life. It's still helping me. And I feel changed and better because of the introduction to these medicines and just my own personal work. And so I was wanting to really ask you as well, what was your introduction into this way of healing, like your own personal healing? Like, when was it like, oh, like this is, this would be helpful for, for me. Um, and then if you would share maybe a couple of things, whatever you feels right regarding um, how it shaped you, how it's changed you. Mm, yeah, yeah. So I love that you said sacred plant medicine. Um, and I want to acknowledge also that I said plant medicine. And I think both of those things deserve a little bit of unpacking. So for me, when I say plant medicine, um, another way of maybe thinking about that is earth medicine. And um, for me, this is a whole psychological shift in concept, right? It is um, not looking at me as a part from the earth, uh, separate from the earth, but as part of the earth, right? And so just my act of communing with the earth is medicine. So my act of nurturing the earth and cultivating relationship with her is medicine. The walks that I go on, whether it be down the street or in a forest, is medicine. Planting my hands into the dirt it's medicine. Stopping to feel the wind 
passed through over and on my skin and through my body and into my lungs in a moment of presence is medicine. And I'm reminded that the earth has been here before we were here and will be here after we're gone from this consciousness. And she has wisdom. Um, she has a canvas of flowers, of blooms. Everything has a purpose and everything is related and connected to one another. And then we have uh, what indigenous culture keepers know as these sacred medicines and each indigenous culture to my knowledge has some form or system of sacred plant medicine in our modern vernacular we might often call it psychedelics um and i won't go down that rabbit hole but so um in africa there's uh, Igbo. I think it's called um, the Mayan, the Aztecs had psilocybin mushrooms. Um, South America, ayahuasca, uh, Central America, uh, what we know as Central America now, peyote, um, and um, marijuana even as a sacred plant medicine for cultures right and so when we talk about the sacred plant medicine i think is uh, what i'm referring to is the medicine's ability to open us up in a different capacity and this is where the term psychedelic comes from psych uh, psyche meaning mind delic meaning manifest or mind manifest but i think we go wrong when we label them as hallucinogenics because when you break that down what hallucinate means is to be deceived to go astray to be uneasy or distraught and that's not actually what these sacred medicines do um, but quite opposite right there's a uh if you don't go into this medicine with a particular reverence, absolutely harm can happen, just like anything. If we don't respect each other's boundaries, we cause harm to each other. But these tools help to create an altered or heightened sense of our connectedness, not just with ourselves, but everything all around us. So I mentioned plant medicine and then sacred plant medicine to say that not everybody will be called to use sacred plant medicine. Um, there's barriers to access to that, but everybody can partake in plant medicine and the tools of plant medicine. Um, so I'll pause there so we can dialogue about some of that. <laughs> yeah. Defining plant medicines, earth medicines. I've never heard anybody do that. And that's important. I'm not saying it hasn't been done, but it's important because language matters, mm -hmm. especially as most of the medicines that we have named are criminalized. Still. Yes. 
And when we look from a historical lens, language matters because it's that specific language of that, like, these are hallucinogens. This is all of these things is, it's what created the stigma. It's what created uh, this long war on drugs, war against drugs. And by drugs, I mean plant medicines, Mm -hmm. plant and animal medicines uh, that have been a part of indigenous cultures, but taken away from us. They were, we were robbed of them because politicians used specific language. So I'm really glad that you that you spoke on that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's really important. Um, and we're, what we're starting to see is that the, as activism has happened around these medicines, um, uh, living here in the United States is both uh, in terms, a lot of privilege and also a lot of disadvantage at times. But to the privilege point, um, due to the first amendment, freedom of religion, um, due to people's activism, um, certain populations can use these medicines freely. Um, there's work being done around uh, to allow the study of these things. And in the study, Johns Hopkins has, has done a large study on psychedelic medicines and its effects on, uh, on the brain, specifically psilocybin and MDMA. Um, and so... Um, we often are socialized to have this conversation around quote unquote drugs and addiction um, to create this negative link to make us want to push these things away. But again, if, if we're approaching this conversation from the idea that our systems are designed to fragment us out, then by design, the illegal making making a plant making something from the earth um, illegal is another tool in that fragmentation um, and I've personally got to consume and so consume psilocybin and that was one of the big recognitions for me um, experiencing this immense sense of care and protection and love um, that that like it's this clarity of purpose um, and I think there's really interesting, as they do the studies, there's a lot of really interesting information from neuroscience and neurobiology coming out about what's actually going on in the brain. And I think when we talk about healing and care, these sacred medicines are going to have a profound effect in that. And um, I think we're also being called to protect those medicines and sacred practices as well. Absolutely. And this conversation around um, plant and animal medicines, it's also making me think about that because we have not had open and legal access to a lot of the medicines, um, we were unaware that the healing that we needed, the connection that we needed, that that existed in the medicine, right? Yeah. yeah. 
And I think it's important to distinguish healing from cure. Oh, speak on it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you can be healed and not be cured. Healing is about acceptance and reconnection. And our system socializes us to think in terms of cure. And so what I don't want the audience to hear is an advocation of these medicines as a cure-all or a a miracle thing, but they are agents to aid in our healing, to aid, um, to help us knock down the place we have built up barriers and blocks, the ways that our bodies have uh, wired itself to protect us or to receive its needs. And to open that up into return to love. (laughs) Again, going back to that ethics of love, that deep practice, that deep care, that deep nurturance, that awareness that you are already good. You're already good. You're already good. And I don't know, maybe it's the petty side of me, but, but I'm also thinking... These medic, medic, these medicines can do what the medical model absolutely could never, could never do. I mean, as an example, connecting us back to nature. Mm. Yes. We can't go to the medical model for that. Yeah, it's very sterile. It's very (laughs) controlled. Your treatment or your symptoms may be treated. But there will still be a void. And this isn't to say not to, you know, I'm not saying to listeners, don't look to the medical model. Yes, get the treatment that you need there. And you, you can have both. Yeah. You can have both. Yeah, Depending. it's not. It's not to. Uh, another way of saying it maybe is not to create another binary, right? Right. But what I'm saying is, and what I'm loving, what I'm seeing is that this medical model is softening, is becoming more pliable. Yes. Open to having the conversation of what we've already known in our bones and our sinews, right? Yeah. Um, and so we we find ourselves in so many ways, in conflict, right? In conflict and in movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to feel really turbulent. Mm-hmm. And that's going to create moments of harm, create moments of being missed. Mm-hmm. Which is why we all have to be engaged in the work. We do. From the we individual absolutely. to the institutional level. Hmm. So I want to pivot a little bit and ask you who or what is inspiring you today? Every person that I get the honor to sit with, to hear their Mm. story, right? Mm -hmm. There's life is inspiring me, honestly. Like, how how amazing is it that literally every day we wake up it's a new 
we we get a blank canvas uh-huh. um we get choice we might not feel like we have access to choice uh-huh. um and to some degree our choices may be limited uh-huh. i want to acknowledge those those facts and those experiences um But I started off by saying even like how we met was this examination of who I needed around me. And so in sticking to that work, I get to just be around inspiring people every damn day. And that's amazing, right? So, um, and I say that and maybe I'll articulate it in this way because the people who inspire me are also having a material difference and a material effect on my life as well. Mm. Um, is this ability to dream together? Is mm. this ability to practice cooperative economics together? Um, is this ability to develop skills together that we didn't know we had or the ability to truly be with each other without judgment right without with all of our neurodiversities um with all of our physical diversities so literally the day-to-day people and i've mentioned a lot of their names um but really the healers the healers are inspiring me and i feel like that's a cop-out again because i also believe that each one of us are healers And so the healers that are actualized, that have stepped into that power, that have accepted that responsibility, that Mm -hmm. legacy work, um, that good ancestor work, Leila Saad, eh? (laughs) Um, That's what's keeping me going, honestly. Because Mm. it truly lets me know that I am not alone and that when I can't go further or I can't carry the load that I can turn to you and you can turn to me and vice versa and we can send the signal and that signal will be responded to we've Mm. cultivated that care and that trust and that nurturance and that love yeah we are all healers I think the problem is that for ourselves, for each other. Um, who or what is filling you with joy right now? Or where are you finding joy lately? Uh, um, my partner. <laughs> uh, my partner, Chris, for sure. Um, it's amazing. Yeah, we didn't get to talk about them, but um, we are in a non-monogamous relationship. And so very much like we are in spring, I feel like there's a lot of love springing up around me. Um, And so I'm, uh, I just noticed, like, I don't know, it feels like I'm in this dreamy, dreamy state of being lately. And um, I just met another person, I'm not ready to share publicly. Mm -hmm. uh, that the way I said it to them is is really 
it's nice to feel a physical arousal, uh-huh. but it's a whole nother story to feel a spiritual arousal. My lord. <laughs> oh, ooh. so find y'all somebody that gives you a spiritual arousal because my my land my land my land um and then like more resource tangibly like want to model um uh activist miriam kaba freaking phenomenal um absolutely love her um she just has a book out called let this radicalize you and um as a person who identifies as an abolitionist in my ethics um she's like a mother of the modern abolitionist uh movement and so and then i have my canon of you know of, of books so i'm reading james baldwin bell hooks mm-hmm. uh, at the moment and so yeah yeah i there's just so much it's so hard to narrow it down because literally um i'm at a healed place in my life where i understand the power that i get to choose to be inspired i get to choose joy uh, i get to choose um some of these higher emotions mm-hmm. And and knowing that I have that choice, I can also be and acknowledge the depression, the sadness that yeah. I experience as well in that. But every day is new and fresh. And when you have supports to access, it's life-changing oh. to you. And so I want I want the world to have what I have, you know, in that regard relationally. Yeah. Where are you finding safe containers, safe people? Mm. What does that look like for you? Honestly, it looks like me building it. Um, I find them everywhere because of how I try to be with people through the practices of consent, through the practice of invitation, through the practice of listening with intention, being present with attention, pausing and asking for clarification. And I'm experiencing this really weird thing where I feel safety even in the midst of disruption and conflict. There's something about being able to be in conflict with a person and still remain connected to them and so um I'll, I'll name that that's my spiritual space right now right I, there's a safety there and also that push pull challenge there um in that space and that I just love it right and I get to heal through that a part of um my childhood wounding of the religions that cast me away and cast me out right and so instead of looking for other people to be the safe space I am being my own safe space and I find that safe space then is all around me yeah yeah that's gonna stick with me for a bit that 
that being my own safe space. I was just on a podcast. This is how in sync we are. <laughs> the podcast came out today and the conversation was around safety and I spoke about what it meant to be a safe person to myself. Mm. I feel like I want to have another conversation with you because we're just, yeah, anytime. we got to do this again. Anytime, anytime, anytime. <laughs> so what music is filling your soul lately? Ooh, okay. Um, so I got, I got multiple multiple people um I love music without words and I love groovy soulful things so um uh and I also love the power of the black gospel church style right so like um one group common hymnal they have two unproduced albums that they just released that my gosh i was mm. i was doing my walk today and something was i was like okay spirit speak speak universe yes <laughs> so mm. highly recommend them um, um mm. and i love that while some of the songs are jesus centered there's a lot of them that are also just very general and accessible to anybody mm -hmm. um, as well um the artist fkj Mm -hmm. love him groove to him oh my gosh yeah uh uh the artist masego m-a-s-e-g-o f-k-j and masego have a collaborative song together um and then uh the season of life that i'm in i just was listening to a lot of trevor hall and east forest as well um they love trevor got me through got me through some things and so and then um honestly I've been practicing and trying to develop my own musical skills and writing some songs lately so one day I'll get to share that with the world and oh I'm looking forward to that <laughs> and then my last question is for listeners that want to connect with you via social media or reach out for teaching or consultation um, or anything just um, how how do you want listeners to connect with you yeah so you can find me on social media i'm on twitter facebook instagram um i probably use instagram the most effectively out of those three uh tommy all good rn on instagram or just search tommy allgood um, or you could also go to my website and fill out a contact me form or schedule an appointment you have access to those links and the website you can get to it at www.tommyallgood or team t-e-a-m um allgood.com thank you so much tommy this conversation, I feel like I just want more and more and more. Um, it's just so good and, and I appreciate you and love you. 
thank you for being here with me today. I love you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to When We Speak. Follow me on Instagram at Tasha Hunter LCSW. If you haven't done so yet, please rate, review, and follow me on iTunes and share it on your social media. If you want a copy of my book, What Children Remember, it is available on Amazon. Until next time.